Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we talk about music inside and out. My name is Noah. You probably know me best as Polyphonic, but maybe maybe you just know me by Noah now. If that's what you know me, <laughs> hi. Hi, Ghost Notes fans. And I'm Corey, and I don't know what that was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm my own person, Corey, you know? I'm not, yeah, I'm not no. entirely my channel. I am entirely my channel. My channel is 12 Toad. I didn't get a chance to say that. We are off to a chaotic start yeah, today. Yes. Oh, bringing the energy. But honestly, I feel like introducing myself as possibly just Noah is fitting given our topic today. Yeah. See, I wasn't being chaotic. I was just being clever. No, yeah. It was, yeah this was <laughs> foreshadowing. Yes. But yeah, um, today I think we're going to talk about sort of why we care so much about music and sort of how we got to the point where we're at where we talk about and think about music as our jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Just kind of our, our own personal journeys with music. Yeah. And personal philosophies and stuff like that as well. So this is going to be a, a lot of navel gazing, a lot of talking about ourselves. We are YouTubers, so we're allowed. So I guess if you want to start like sort of start at the beginning, little baby Noah back when he was still, you know, first species counterpoint, how did, how did he get into music? The year was 1993 and meatloaf was on the charts. <laughs> I'm bringing I'm bringing a lot of chaotic energy today. Yeah, no, this one's getting weird. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think that like in general, I grew up in a pretty musical household. Like my parents didn't, well, my dad used to play saxophone a long time ago, but that was more of like a high school band thing. But my dad, what he did do was in high school, he DJed, like he would DJ like high school dances and stuff like that. He always had kind of a close connection to music. And I grew up in a household just listening to a lot of music. So I think that's my earliest roots. But then I think like a lot of people with music, like when it really started to get its claws into me was in high school. And that's when the first band that I like really, really became obsessed with was the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And I started to play bass. And interestingly, the the Chili Peppers kind of sent me down a couple musical journeys because they were it was through them that I eventually got to punk, which was probably my favorite genre for most of high school. And I think punk is what really got me deeply into music and what really made music have such a personal connection to me. And then they also got me into, you know, funk and uh, a lot of, I mean, not entirely them, but in general, I was also listening to a lot of like classic rock and stuff at the time, which you might've noticed. I kind of made yeah, a channel I around. <laughs> Would never have guessed. I don't think there's anything particularly special for me. I think it's mostly just, you know, starting off in high school and just yeah. really kind of developing a passion for music and growing and fostering that over the years. And in terms of like the deeper level stuff, we can get into that more. But I think this is just, yeah. that's kind of my high level overview. How about you? I My story's not entirely dissimilar. I also grew up in what I would consider a reasonably musical household, but more music listening and music appreciating, yeah. not so much music making. So within my family, there was some of that, like both of my dad's uncles played instruments and were in bands, but my dad wasn't really, but his family sort of had a sort of a folk background. Uh, his father especially loved folk music. And so a lot of that sort of folk participatory energy came through him. And he also, you know, listens to a lot of dad rock. This is how I got exposed to bands like, you know, Traffic, bands like Jethro Tull, The Who, not so much Led Zeppelin, interestingly. Funnily enough, that's also like Zeppelin I also got into on my own. The dad rock that yeah. my dad was very into like Steely Dan, Doobie Brothers, like that yeah. kind of, that aspect of dad rock. 
On my mother's side, she was more into sort of pop rock of the 70s. That's where I got sort of my interest in Elton John, Billy Joel, yeah. David Bowie, people Fleetwood like that. Mac. Uh, Fleetwood Mac, yeah. I think I got Fleetwood Mac from both sides, if I'm being honest. I mean, I'm white, so naturally my parents love Fleetwood Mac. That's kind of a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, I, like, I think that I sort of grew up surrounded by music, but not super involved in it, if that makes sense. And so I, I was listening to it a lot and... You know, I would listen to CDs to go to sleep, although honestly, most of the time I would listen till the end of the CD and then go to sleep. But, you know, it was a way to sneakily extend my bedtime. To my mom, I think I mentioned before, it's like she was big into musical theater as well. And so I think back a lot of the early stuff that I was listening to was things like Cats, Jesus Christ Superstar. She really liked Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, and passed that on. But like stuff like that. Uh, and then similarly, sort of in high school, I had already gotten into metal. I don't Honestly, remember how? I think it might just be LimeWire's fault. <laughs> oh, it's all LimeWire's fault. <laughs> I think I may have just wound up with some metal stuff that I like randomly and was like, oh, this is cool. I should look more into this. Around, I think I was like 16. And, yeah, I think I was 16 at the time. This was when the show Metalocalypse came out. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar, but I'm, um, I'm definitely familiar. Yeah. Hopefully, our listeners are familiar as well because I'm not going to explain. But what happened in basically every suburb across the United States when that show came out was that groups of teenagers were like, oh, hey, we should start a metal band. And my friend group was no different. We were going to call it Death Knife because we were very <laughs> original. And I didn't play an instrument, so they were just like, okay, Corey can sing. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try that out. I have these metal songs that I like. I'm just going to make a playlist and just uh, scream along with it. And I figured out a technique that worked. And I got like super into it. And then it turned out that none of my friends were actually all that serious about starting a band. That was just sort of a joke that we were doing. And it was like, okay, well, but I like doing this now. So I guess I'm going to go to college for it. I also, I neglected to mention the fact that I was in a couple bands in high school. The first was Turtle. We just played a lot of covers, a lot of metal actually. Yeah. And then tried to get a band going to do originals, but it was mostly just an excuse to yeah. hang out and jam with my friends. Yeah. Which, yeah, I think a lot of bands are, and yeah. it's totally reasonable. I grew up in the suburbs of Boston, and so it was natural to look at Berkeley as a place to do things. And so I did some summer programs there as a teenager. I applied the first time I did one and didn't get in. And so then I went back for a second summer. And while I was there, I was talking to some of my teachers. I was like, hey, do you have any advice? And one of the teachers I was talking to who had been working with me in a couple of places was just like, uh, you don't want to do this. This is not the right school for you. They're going to make you do so many things. Like, I know the sort of music you want to make. I can hear it in what you're doing. This is not the right environment for that. Berkeley's understanding of metal is dream theater <laughs> and you're not doing dream theater metal. And I was like, yeah, that, and it was good advice. And so wound up applying somewhere else and going somewhere else based on largely that advice. For me on the university thing, as I think I've mentioned before on this, like I went to school for journalism with the intention of being a music journalist and I kind yeah. of succeeded at that goal, I suppose. Yeah, I, I would say you succeeded at that goal. But. I was I was just interested in journalism and interested in music. So for me, the school journalism was first and foremost. And then while I was in jur journalism, I kind of kept pursuing my love for music there. Yeah. And for me, I, I think sort of my college experience was pretty transformative in terms of how I was thinking about what I was doing. Because like I said, I showed up planning to be a metal singer. My goal was to be, you know, the next... Rob Zombie or something. As I got there, 
like a pretty quickly, you know, one, one of the things that happens when you go to music school, if you have good teachers, is that they will pretty quickly disabuse you of any notions of like instant fame. It's just not how the industry works. You're going to spend a lot of, it's kind of being a professional musician sucks in a lot of ways. And yes, those are not obvious to people who are just aspirational rock stars. And so coming in, especially like teenagers. And so like coming in, I had a lot of teachers who were just like, okay, let's be realistic. Let's look at how the industry works. And it pretty quickly became clear to me that that wasn't actually interesting to me. I think back on like being on stage and like, screaming my heart out and just nailing a performance. And it is one of the best feelings I've ever had. Like, yeah, but there's just, it's such a small part of actually being a professional performing musician that it just, the rest of it just wasn't worth it for me. I totally respect anyone for whom it is worth it. Like, I think that's great. Yeah. And I wish that it was an easier career path for those people, but I agree. I remember there was definitely a shift in me at some point where when I was in high school, I loved performing and I still do love performing. I don't really do it anymore. But yeah, like performance and playing and creating music was the way that I most wanted to engage with music. I wanted to like I wrote a lot of my own songs. I jammed like basically a couple hours every day, we'd go over to my friend's place. He had a drum kit. We would just jam. Like that was kind of my default way of engaging with music. And then for me, it was kind of as I got into school and started doing journalism, that kind of began to change the way that I thought about, I mean, everything, but music especially. And I think that's when I really started to realize that as much as I do really love playing music, even though I don't do it nearly enough these days, like what I love more, probably more than even listening to music, I love thinking about music and talking about music. And university is where I really started to, you know, engage with the concept of thinking academically about music as a cultural object. For me, I took an elective class that was called Issues in Popular Music, and it was essentially a like popular music musicology class. And that was an absolute game changer for me in just shifting perspective. I think amazing how you go to school and you learn stuff. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's wild. But like, yeah, I think that that's one of the things when I tell this story, I worry that it I don't, I don't worry, but I think it sort of may sound like, oh, I got scared away out of a performing career. And it's like, no, I got turned on to something yeah. that I found way more rewarding and way more satisfying. And it opened my mind in a lot of ways. Basically, I sort of went through a couple phases where I showed up and I was like, I'm going to be in a band. That's going to be my thing. After a while, at least, I was a good metal singer. Like, I was yeah. a pretty damn good metal singer. But I wasn't so good that someone was going to organize a band around me. And so as the singer, there was the assumption that I was going to do it myself. And like, I tried a couple times and and it just always fell apart because I suck at organizing people. Well, also because musicians are notoriously flaky. Well, yeah, no, working with musicians is not great anyway, but like, you know, on top of that, I was just like, I could not be the one who was like, okay, we all have to be here at this time. I couldn't do that every week. And so I started looking at like, okay, well, if I'm not going to be doing that full on, like. One of the other things that was interesting to me and was getting more interesting to me was because I was working closely with the main vocal tech teacher at the school. And I was like, maybe I want to be a vocal teacher. And so I started looking into that. And so I transferred from the associate's program that I was doing to get a bachelor's. And over there, like I was sort of working towards that to have a degree that I could show people to be like, look, I have a real degree. I can teach this stuff. And then from there, that's sort of where I got my first 
real exposure to music. I, I, that's not fair. I like I like I said, I had done some stuff at Berkeley, and that transferred over to what I was doing in the Associates. But then the Bachelor stuff was doing more classical theory, but it also went a lot deeper. And so that was where I really got into some of the more interesting structures in, at least in classical music theory, that were wound up turning me on to that way of thinking in a way that I hadn't really seen previously. And so that wound up becoming more of an interest of mine through that process. I think my kind of version of that came from outside of music, from during my degree, I originally double majored, but then switched to a minor because I drank too much alcohol and was hung over in my English uh, 3000 class. <laughs> but I minored in English literature. And I think for me, English, the combination of kind of practicing music journalism, like writing reviews and interviewing bands and stuff for yeah. the school paper and studying literature where like really like ultimately what an English class teaches you more than anything else is how to read a text and how to yeah. analyze a text. And the texts that you analyze in English tend to be books or poems, but yeah. all of the same principles apply to basically any artistic work. So that was where I started kind of piecing these things together, you know, where it's like, oh, like I really enjoy looking at a piece of art or culture and trying to explore like chip away and find the meaning of that and place it within a historical context and stuff like that. And also, I really love music. That's where what would eventually become polyphonic started to kind of crystallize in my mind as, oh, like you can do so much talking about music and thinking about music as cultural objects. Yeah, and I think that maybe leads us into more of the the personal philosophy side of the discussion because for me, I think there's sort of two, not necessarily competing pillars, but two separate but complementary, I guess, sort of pillars of my understanding of music and music theory that contribute to why I care so much. And I think the first of those is that, like, I, I just really like math. Like, I really like shapes and numbers and especially... That's where we differ, friend. Sure. Yeah, and though having a Fantasia, a lot of the way that I conceptualize music and music theory is very geometric, is very shapes-based in ways that are often hard to put into words in ways that make sense to other people. But there's just those sorts of... I've, I've described it in the past as a sort of like intellectual sculpture where like you look at something like a really beautiful... Diminished seventh chord modulations are my go-to example like there's just this beautiful confluence of like the symmetricality of the chord and the needs of functional harmony and the tuning systems that we use and the number of notes that we use and the scales and all of these things that sort of combine to make this thing that just happens to be really elegant under these specific conditions. I've made videos about it. If people want to look it up, I probably shouldn't go on a digression about what diminished seventh modulations are right now. I mean, I could, but the, those sorts of things, like I find really compelling as a theorist just for their aesthetic value as a way of sort of understanding literally as an art form on its own, as a way of creating beauty and meaning out of raw materials. In this case, those raw materials are musical norms. My philosophy is, I think I do that 
in a different way with different things. For me, that's kind of what the historical context does for me. We've talked about this before where like for me, like my favorite thing to do and my favorite approach with music. And I mentioned that issues in popular music class that I took. And I think that informed it. I also think that I had a podcast where I interviewed musicians during my fourth year of university, and that informed it a lot, talking about musicians and seeing how they kind of came to these songs. But yeah, for me, like, kind of, you've got this song, and this song is kind of this, you know, beautiful thing that can stand on its own and can just be, you know, kind of a raw emotional experience. But then you can kind of pull back and learn about this song and in doing so you can kind of be like okay well what was it that might have inspired somebody to create that emotional experience what is it about that particular emotional experience that is so compelling to us and for me that's where the kind of cultural context thing comes in yeah I think similar to what you do with kind of finding meaning by placing a piece of music or even even just like something as simple as a chord or something like that within a kind of mathematical and analytical framework. For me, what's always stirred me, like I've always just really liked history and really liked culture and politics. So for me, my meaning has always been found by placing these songs that I love within this context and kind of understanding them not as individual works, but but as part of this ongoing weaving tapestry of music that ties into, well, it it ties into everything, you know? It ties into social movements, politics, aesthetic movements, artistic movements. Like, I really like, it's almost like you're almost staring at the song through a microscope and then you, you know, pan out and zoom out and suddenly see that this song is just like one thread in a vast and endless tapestry. Yeah, no, building that web of connections. Yes, yeah. And that, I think, speaks to sort of the second pillar that I was going to talk about. So nice transition. Thank you. Smooth. I'm on it. The other reason that I care about music so much is that I care about stories. Yes. And this is a philosophy that is I'm heavily influenced by Terry Pratchett, I, but also heavily influenced by my upbringing and especially on my father's side, a lot of that, the philosophy that I got from him and his family. But like, I strongly believe that one of the best, if not the best way to understand a group of people or to understand a culture is to look at how they tell stories, how they tell their stories, what those stories are, what stories they tell, who and what those stories are about, the structure of those stories. You know, I I think a central thesis of a lot of my analysis is that the songs that I'm analyzing are first and foremost stories. They're not, you know, just these abstract geometric shapes. Like if you look at, like I just recently did a video about Landslide, the Fleetwood Mac song. I briefly talk about the harmony in there. Most of the video is about sort of the anxiety of the song and that the isolation and that sort of movement through time being dragged along through your life and that how that relates to, like I talked about in the beginning of the video, like Stevie Nicks's experience being sort of at a crossroads where she was kind of thinking of giving up her music career and how that bleeds into the song and how that then projects forward into other people's experiences of the song. And all of that comes from, again, the premise that this is first and foremost a narrative object the analysis of 
what's happening within it musically or within these geometric structures or whatever serves those narrative functions in sort of much the same way that those historical contexts do, right? Like yeah, uh, understanding what the 1970s was is a significant portion of it. And again, understanding the context of her life at that time made a huge difference in how that song reads. For me, like the story thing, absolutely, like that thought absolutely resonates with me as a trained journalist, right? Like ultimately, yeah, what you learn is that everything is a story. And what you're kind of doing in journalism, they talk a lot about is... It's not really like you're not creating a story. You're looking at something and kind of excavating the story behind it. And that's exactly what I think both of us do in our own way with music is it's not an act of creation, which is something I'm also I'm just fascinated by the creative process. And like ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer and stuff like that. So I'm very interested in creating stories. But I think that what we do is it's not creating these stories from the blue. It's finding these stories or almost like, you know, like the Michelangelo metaphor of, you know, carving the sculpture out of marble. Yeah, like in my mind, a song or an album or a movement or whatever is a beautiful story that's waiting there to be uncovered and really not just one story, you know, like there's even just looking at where we differ in our approaches like that alone can show you the myriad different ways that you can uncover different stories within music. But, but I agree, like it's very much an act of discovering the story that exists already baked into this piece of media. So I would push back on that a little bit. Okay. Like the Michelangelo analogy, I think, is a reasonable one. You're sort of like uncovering the sculpture that's already within the marble. But I think that for me, from my perspective, I believe that analysis is generative and that analysis is therefore its own form of artwork. Because, and this is a thing we've talked about a couple of times where like, you know, we can talk about how the song captured the intention of the artist, but we have to guess what the intention of the artist is and what we're actually uncovering is what it expresses about ourselves and our experience. And so I think that, you know, when I go into, especially like something like Landslide or something like The Man Who Sold the World, it's another one that's like, is pretty ambiguous. There are a lot of possible readings. Whereas you look at something like, I don't know, what's a good example of, I'll just use the one I always use, System of a Down's prison song. Yeah. Not that many possible interpretations. Which side are you on? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Love me, I'm a liberal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Those sorts of songs. But like, if you look at especially these more abstract ones, I think ultimately an analysis says more about the person analyzing than it does about the work or the artist or the artist being analyzed. I think I would agree with you on that. I think it kind of, I mean, I think it is both. It is yeah. generative, and I also think it's a an act of uncovering. And I think that different sorts of analyses tend themselves to different directions of that. Like, like I would say, for me, there are some videos that I do that are 100% kind of telling a story about me. But I do think when I'm placing something within a historical context, you know, like one yeah. of my favorite videos I've done, my video on Scott Joplin, which if yeah. really, that's... I think some of the best work that I've done. Completely agree. Highly recommend if anyone hasn't seen it. That for me was a lot more about, like it was telling the story, but it was about like uncovering the story that already 
kind of existed. And to a point, I believe this stuff exists. Like, this is getting, like, a little more kind of, like, I don't know, metaphysical or whatever you want to call it. But a lot of the stuff that I kind of believe, like, I believe a lot of these stories exist kind of in something that is, you know, not exactly, but not meaningfully dissimilar from a, uh, like, collective unconscious or something like that, you know? Yeah. We have a shared cultural heritage. Yeah. I don't think there's an objective truth to that heritage because... Yeah, no, we want to be really careful when we're throwing around terms like cultural heritage, but... I think that there is work to be done to uncover that, and you can uncover that by placing stuff within sociopolitical and historical moments. I agree with you. I do think no matter what... There is a level to which it is generative. Yeah. And I think that also just like vastly depends, like you were saying, artist to artist, like where one of the artists that if you're a fan of my channel, you might have noticed that I'm a little fond of Bob Dylan. Hmm. Never heard of him. What does he do? He does Christmas songs. Oh, For me, a lot of my, the kind of generative, like finding your own meaning and stuff like that. Yeah. A lot of that for me started with loving Bob Dylan and wanting to figure out what the hell these songs were about. It's sort of like the difference between an archaeologist and a sculptor, right? Yeah. Like they're both taking a piece of rock and turning it into an interesting shape, but the archaeologist has dinosaur bones to find and the sculptor is inventing a dinosaur or something else. But you know what? Why would you not invent a dinosaur? If you were inventing anything, invent a dinosaur. I don't know why sculptors sculpt anything other than dinosaurs. Like wouldn't the Statue of Liberty be way radder if it was a T-Rex? Yeah, the Statue of Libertosaurus. Let's go. (laughs) Exactly. Libertyrannosaurus. Liberty Rex. There it is. The Statue of Liberty Rex. (laughs) Liberty Rex. We found it. We did it, gang. Thanks for listening to Ghost Notes. This is the end of the podcast forever. We did yeah. it. I would put sort of the act of analysis sort of in between. Yeah. Where ultimately there there is something in the stone, but it's still up to you to decide what shape it takes. And I think that's true no yeah. matter what. Like, even if you are sort of doing something in a historical context, you're choosing to use that lens. You're choosing which yeah. historical facts are relevant. You're yeah. choosing yeah. how to construct a consistent narrative out of history, which is not a consistent narrative. You know, all of these decisions are still being made by you. And at the end of the day, I I think it is a mistake to think of ourselves as archaeologists, but also a mistake to think of ourselves as sculptors. Yeah, I agree. I think it's kind of, it is a beautiful mixture of both. And like, I mean, I think think that's what I love about analysis and thinking of analysis as art and creating analysis as art. Because, I mean, from the beginning, like my a big core of my philosophy has always been that what I'm doing is art. And I mean, 100% same. It's pretty easy to see like how I can justify that visually, but it's not just the visuals. Yeah. Oh, if it was just the visuals, my stuff would not count as art. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Whoa, rude. I can say that. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, elephants are art. Um, (laughs) They're just not dinosaurs. Anyway, go on. There's something beautifully modern about that. And I think it's something that really, I might even go so far as to say that like art analysis might be like the defining form of art of our era, which is really bold, bold, interesting. uh, (laughs) I mean, I might not fully say that, but I think there's, I think it's a defensible position. I don't think you're wrong. 
Yeah, exactly. I'm never wrong. Well, <laughs> it's all subjective anyway. There's something that I really, I really like about that marriage. And I think there's something, I think maybe this is just me speaking to it with music because music is my preferred medium. But I think that there's something about music in particular that lends itself to this sort of, you know, beautiful dance between sculpting and archaeology, where just the nature of music is that as a medium, it's so intangible. You know, it's so hard to put a finger on, but it's also so ubiquitous. And it's so important and it's so defining in so many cultures, but especially ours. Like, I don't want to like like overstate the extent to which I can be an expert in cultures I don't belong to. But like it certainly in Western popular culture, music is everywhere. Yes. But I think part of that modernness is also part of what makes that such an important idea to me, because especially coming from music theory, like especially like mid 20th century theory and earlier, there was this huge push towards like music theory as objective reality. Yeah. And like these formulas that you could solve to music somehow unclear how that was supposed to work but a lot of very (laughs) smart people insisted it did and a lot of not as smart people as well also intelligence is not a directly measurable thing blah 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 okay i'm done with that disclaimer but yeah like i think that that like there's was a huge push towards that towards doing especially music theory like i think this was not a small part of the split between music theory and musicology in america was this desire to do sound math and make that into our entire thing. And I love sound math. It's it's one of my favorite things to do, but I think that it's really important to keep in mind that at the end of the day, you can't just reduce it to formulas. And those formulas don't prove anything. They don't solve anything. There's a disconnect between the sound and the math, no matter how close you try and smush them together. I mean, we're getting like broadly philosophical here, but that is so much a uh, kind of like Uh, Again, how we can see how cultures play on this, that's so much a kind of like enlightenment ideal, right? Like, quote unquote, enlightenment, enlightenment ideal of the concept that like everything is measurable and quantifiable. That's a very kind of cornerstone of the enlightenment. And that led to, I mean, we can look at a lot of the horrible implications of that came out of that. But yeah, I think that's, I I agree with you that I think music is so interesting because like a close like cultural comparison to music is film. Yeah. But technical analysis of film, you can talk about, you know, montage and all this film theory stuff, but technical analysis of film, it tends to look at technique, like technique that directors are using, it doesn't tend to you look at, I mean, some people do, but look at, you know, the way that the light is refracting off of the film and stuff yeah. like that. But a lot of technical analysis of music gets very into the kind of scientific side of like, what is making this sound the way that it does? And how do those sounds create emotional or intellectual, or whatever sort of response. I think music has such an interesting technical tilt to it that's not really like the, it's not really like the technical side of other forms of art. Yeah, I I think, like, if you look at film analysis, I think you'd see, or from the film analysis that I watch anyway, it all comes back to, like, 
what is this thing doing in the context of the greater story? What is this thing doing? Yeah. Like, why are they using this angle to create this effect because it's meaningful to this story? And like, and at some level, like, I, I think it's interesting with film to do that with film over music because film, at least like professional high budget film stuff, has so many more people involved and requires so much more yeah. explicit technique. This is stuff, it's so much harder to just fake that. It's really not that hard to get a couple friends in a garage and knock out some pretty cool songs. And so there's an extent to which music is inherently this much more intuitive and much more instinctive thing that you, that then gets, I don't want to say over-theorized because over-theorizing is my whole thing. I love doing it and I'm not going to criticize it, but it gets sort of divorced from that reality. And then part of me almost feels... And it's felt for a long time like a lot of the really, really high level like music theory models are a form of like academic imposter syndrome almost, where it's mm-hmm. a way of being like, look, no, guys, we're we're a real serious thing. We use big fancy words and we have like math to back our and it's just it's a way of being like, no, we're we're not just, you know. We're not just talking about the, these, like, a couple friends hanging out in a garage banging out some tunes. Like, that's not what we're doing. I think for me, I, I think that's incredibly true. And I think for me, this is this is something else that I kind of wanted to, it's a nice segue to something else I wanted to get into on this episode is kind of how my philosophy has changed and yeah. how our philosophies have changed. Because for me, when I first started my channel, I, and I've mentioned this a bit before, like I really felt exactly that imposter syndrome where like a lot of my early videos, I do music theory analysis because I felt that, and especially in that landscape at the time. You wanted to put out your alternate definition of a triplet so people would know. Just teach the controversy. I'm going to (laughs) radicalize my radical (laughs) triplet ideology. No, but like that was a thing where it was that to me felt like the barrier of entry and the proper way to talk about music. You could talk about music if you justified kind of what made something good. And that's something that like, you know, a lot of my early videos are kind of in the in the vein of, oh, what makes this song good? Like that sort of thing. Yeah. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that sort of analysis, but it's just not a sort of analysis that I find that valuable anymore because where I'm at now is like, okay, like, yeah, no. Yeah, lots of songs are good because, you know, all music is good. But like- yeah. What I'm interested in is like, I feel like I've shifted from that sort of kind of analysis to a lot more of the narrative and storytelling of music and a lot more my role at the beginning. I think I was very much trying to, like I've mentioned before, and also, I mean, you don't really need to me to mention it to know that Vox is clearly a big influence on my work. Huh. And a lot of their stuff had this kind of, and still to this day, kind of had this pop science-y tilt. Yeah. And I think as I've done my analysis and as I've gotten better and more comfortable in my polyphonic skin, I've become a lot more comfortable bringing in, like I said, those things that I learned in my English degree, that text analysis and reading and kind of trusting that, no, like I don't need, 
I don't need theory. I don't need pseudoscientific analysis to justify why this is good. This is good because it's an important story that, again, culturally impacts anyone who listens to the song. Yeah, I think I had a fairly similar journey, but for completely different reasons. (laughs) I think early on, if you look at a lot of my early analyses, the philosophy of, like, music as a form of narrative has always been there, but it was I was less conscious of it. I was less aware of that as a motivating factor. And the more sort of slap labels on things approach was how I was taught to analyze music. This is what yeah. they teach you, or at least what they taught you back when I was in school. Like there's definitely been some upheavals in the music theory curriculums in major institutions since I graduated. And I want to give credit to that. But I, I, this is still, even to this day, a lot of it is just like, you know, students don't get a huge chance to really analyze music for meaning. They just analyze it for structure. And then it's assumed, I guess, that later on you'll figure out how to turn those structures into meaning. But like, if you stop after a bachelor's degree, you never get that, or at least you never did. I Again, I don't know what's happening in music theory classrooms in 2022. But like, when I was starting analyzing songs, it was, it was very much that because that's what I knew how to do. And it wasn't necessarily how I wanted to analyze, but it was how I knew how to analyze. And it felt like the right way to analyze. And as I kept going, it, I think, became more and more, both through like doing the work over and over and also having conversations about it with other people. Like I've talked with Adam about this. I've talked with you about this. And just like getting a deeper sense of what I wanted this to be. And I realized that really what I'm doing is a journaling exercise. It's a, it's a public chronicling of my experience of diving deeply into a piece of music. And that that is entirely separate from any sort of value judgment. It's entirely separate from like dictating other people's experiences. It's entirely separate from a lot of the like slapping like structural labels on things that I was taught to do. And all of those can be useful tools, but they're just that. They're tools serving a greater and more important and more meaningful goal, or at least more meaningful to me and more important to me, of uncovering my own experience of the song, both listening to it casually, what I get from the song, and also what I get from diving into it. That's really interesting as a as a journaling exercise. I've never I've never heard you explicitly frame it that way. And it's a really it's an interesting thought. Yeah. I mean that's sort of this is, was part of me trying to sort of, in my mind, explicitly move away from telling other people how they experience the music. Because I think yeah. that I never wanted to do that, but it's very easy to do. And I still do it sometimes because it's just a much easier way to frame things. But it, it's one of those things where I try in most of my videos to at least at some point take some time to be like, this is my thought. Your thoughts might be different. That's cool. Have those thoughts instead of my thoughts. Yeah. But like giving that space and trying to be really explicit with myself about like at some level, there's a risk of doing harm when you present an analysis, when you try and push someone to think about things in a certain way that doesn't necessarily reflect their experience or reflects like, especially when you're engaging with like music from outside cultures that you really deeply understand. There's a lot of potential for harm in misrepresenting that music. And so like, trying to separate myself from that as much as possible by being as open as I can with myself and with my viewers about the extent to which I am just talking about me and they can take or leave anything I say. 
I think that it's interesting because I think my response to, I feel like I was doing harm in some of my earlier analysis approach and not intentionally. Yeah, no. I feel similar where I felt like there was a point and I know exactly kind of like, it was sometime in 2019, I reached this point where I realized that there is a big echo chamber in kind of pop music analysis. Yeah. And I use pop in the broad sense, not in the like, you know, yeah. Popular um, music, in, yeah. Yeah. In popular music analysis, there was like a really big echo chamber and it was an echo chamber that kind of, you know, the echo chamber that that creates this cultural canon of, you know, 70s rock, 60s and 70s rock was the best. Yeah. Here's all these generations of brilliant, white, mostly straight men, except Freddie Mercury and Elton John, yeah. who, you know, created this and are the, like you know, rock gods and titans and stuff like this. And as I was becoming more aware, kind of socially, of everything that's going on, and as my channel was growing, what started as me just kind of talking about the music that I liked, yeah, my horizons expanded and I started to like more music. And I also started to realize that I think I was doing harm by contributing to this kind of grand cultural narrative. And so I, and, and I think around a similar time, I think you came to a similar conclusion as well. I yeah. remember we were both looking for opportunities to talk about more music created by women, people of color, queer people, underrepresented minorities. And I think that that reflected a, a there was a real shift where I realized this is not actually just me talking about things that I like. Yeah. Um, almost kind of like, I think related, but kind of a different response to you, your perspective. Like it, it's like this became about... I realized that I was having a role in creating this cultural narrative that I really didn't like. And I began to think of myself less as, you know, just a creator or something yeah. and more as a journalist and a historian. And I began to realize the kind of moral responsibility that comes with that and began to actively seek opportunities to change the narrative that we have about that music. Yeah, I think uh, what you're getting at there, if I'm understanding correctly, and this is something that I've thought about a lot as well, is that you and I, along with our colleagues, are playing a not insignificant role in shaping a canon. Yes, yes, that's exactly it. Yeah, we're, we're building a canon of what the good bands are, and a lot of what we're doing is reinforcing these ideas that have been around in rock for decades now. Like I remember yeah. like when I was like a little kid, like there was already this idea that like, oh, rock peaked in the 70s. Yeah. You know, it was like the Beatles were great. Led Zeppelin was great. Pink Floyd was great. And then rock was done. And it's like, well, and again, like this is something I've, I've talked about before. I think like the last artist that you could really seriously make a case for in the court of public opinion as being a deserving a spot in the rock canon was Nirvana. And Kurt Cobain died like 30 years ago. So yep. a lot has happened in rock since then. And I don't think that there's anyone else since then that you could really 
make that case again like not not necessarily like yeah. personally uh, most important to you or whatever but i think that general in the general narrative of rock music i don't know who it is after nirvana yeah. i don't know who has a claim to that title I think the closest claim you can have is Jack White. Ja- oh, yeah. Okay. But you look at the scale of Jack White yeah. compared to the scale of, like, Kurt Cobain or David Bowie or something yeah. like that, and it's it's completely different. Yeah, right? it's, it's like, one of the things where, like, you, you and I can have this conversation, and we can agree that Jack White belongs in that, like, conversation. Yeah. And a lot of people will listen and nod along, but, like, you know, when you put together the lists, when you see, like, the top whatevers, you don't even see Nirvana on there usually. Like, yeah. even that is, like... The bands that were active after the 80s and even mostly in the 80s are just not on the list and they they don't really get considered. And so there's definitely a part of what I've been trying to do is sort of look at stuff, the the stuff from my childhood, the stuff that I grew up with in like the 90s and 2000s, because that's music that I understand really deeply. And this is sort of, I have have tried to branch out and look at other styles, but I, I, the more I look at that stuff, the more hesitant I become and the more cautious I become. Because again, I think there's a lot of potential to do harm by doing a bad job presenting an analysis to a large audience. And especially if it's an analysis of like someone else's culture, like a marginalized community's culture, like you're not, like this is one of the things like for a long time, I have wanted to do just one of my song analysis videos about a hip hop song. I've thought, like, because I want to make the case that hip-hop is a serious and important style of music that is worthy of analysis. And I still think that that video should be made, but, like, these days I'm just not convinced that I can be the person to make it or that I should be the person to make it or that I understand the musical culture and vocabulary and norms of hip-hop deeply enough to not do harm by presenting a video, an analysis like that to an audience as large as mine. Yeah, I think that's something where, like... In what we do, that's one of the places where it differs because, I mean, I I do, I still do it with a lot of care, but I think there's a difference between kind of providing an analysis and kind of placing historical context. Like things like my like, you know, Scott Joplin video or my sister Rosetta Tharp or things like that are things where... Like, I think you can you can look at primary sources, yeah. you know, and it's easier to be to have some level of, you know, confidence in yeah. the fact that you're you're telling the story of this person's life. And obviously, it's still really important to be done with care. Oh, absolutely. But I think that that's something where like my kind of narrative historical buys me more opportunity to talk about and highlight these things than yeah. a tight analytical to something that you might not have the cultural context for does. Yeah, and I mean, it's sort of, to go back to the archaeology versus sculpture thing, I think that, like I said, analysis exists in the middle, but it can exist more on one side than the other. And I think the closer you are to the archaeology side, at some level, like me doing an analysis of like a Kendrick Lamar song feels like trying to do sculpture with the sort of stones that archaeologists use, right? Like there's a dinosaur in there and I'm just trying to make it into something else. And like, it's not, like I listen to hip hop, I do, but it's not something that I grew up listening to that much. It's not something that I'm like, I'm nearly as familiar with both from a compositional side, like from having tried to make it as I am with rock and metal. It's just not something that I, this is one of the things I think I mentioned, I was reading a book about Jay Dilla. And one of the things that I learned from that is how little I actually understand all of the nuances that go into the, the art of sampling and all of the things that you can do with that. 
this is the thing too, is like I've done a fair number of hip hop videos and I like yeah. hip hop a lot, but even still, like the reality is that there's such a cultural weight behind hip hop that yeah. is like more so than, I mean, my latest kind of obsession with music that I think is just criminally like not talked about enough and is not talked about enough because it was primarily made by black artists is soul music. Like 70s progressive soul, I think is as good as music has ever been. Like Stevie Wonder is incredible. Isaac Hayes, Curtis Mayfield, all of these. But hip hop has such a dense, unique, rich culture that, yeah, like I'm a hip hop fan. I like a lot of hip hop, but I am not part of the culture and I will never be part of the culture. Yeah, And, and one thing that like I just... To be clear, this is not just because Noah and I are white, right? Like, this is not... Yes. And we are. That is relevant. But, like, if someone, like, say, Eminem wants to present an argument about hip-hop, like, I trust him to, like... uh, Because he is is a part of that. And so, like, it's not... Yeah. Because it it, it can kind of sound, when we're we're talking about stuff, like it's just sort of, like, a race-essentialist thing where it has a lot more to do with sort of what we grew up with, what sorts of music we were successfully enculturated into, and yeah. our personal backgrounds with both listening to and making and analyzing music. Yeah, I just want to be really clear on that. Like, LP is part of the hip-hop culture. Oh, yeah. You know, like... I, I would listen to LP's hip-hop analysis. Yeah, exactly. That's something, just all of this stuff broadly is something that I have... Like, it's really changed in recent years. And it, it kind of, I think for a lot of people, this this sort of mentality has come up for obvious reasons as well. But, yeah. like, I'm just so much more constantly aware of the responsibility that I yeah. have as someone creating stuff that's going out to hundreds of thousands of people. There's so much more responsibility, too. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think that's, to be clear, like, I think that, that's a good thing. I think it has enriched my analysis. I think I've done all of my best videos in the last two years. And, you know, I think I will continue to get better at this. Like, I think it has enriched my experience, but it's also something where like what I am doing now, how I think about music now, how I think about my videos now, it's all like completely, completely different than than when I started five years ago. Absolutely. Like when I started seven years ago now, I think, it was I was making undergrad theory tutorials. I wasn't trying to, but that's what I was making. And yeah. it's similarly, like I think I, I'm not sure that I would say all of my best videos were in the last two years. Most of them were. I'm pretty confident of that. And yeah. like I think that uh, certainly I would say all of my best analyses were in the last two years. Yeah. Like I go back and I watch those early analysis videos and they're fine. Like I, when I revisited them for the most part, I was actually pretty impressed with myself, like past Corey. I think that I didn't give them enough credit, but when I look at the stuff I'm doing now and I look at the stuff I was doing then it's night and day. And that's what happens when you practice something. This is not a huge surprise, but yeah, I think that like another thing that I wanted to get at when we're talking about like trying to, avoid building a cannon, trying to avoid causing harm by misusing our influence. Like, I think there's an extent to which that's, that becomes difficult because of the nature of the platform we're working with. Like, I think that I've mentioned this before, Like, I, but I, one thing that I've really had to come to terms with 
as a creator is that a not insignificant portion of my audience just wants me to say that a song they like is good in a way that sounds objective. Yeah. Like, this is my job. This is how I pay my bills. And so there's an extent to which I kind of need to lean into that. And there's an extent to which I try not to. And it's a balancing act. And I I don't think that there's necessarily a harm in being like, this is good. As long as you're not like trying to be like, this is objectively the best or whatever. Like that, I think there's a difference between those two. For me, like, yeah, if you're careful about it, it's not that there's harm. But I think for me, when we get to the sculptor side, it's just way less interesting for me as a creator to do that. And I think that there's, it's just in general, like, it's not a style of content that I watch. It's not a style of content that I'm that interested anymore. Like, I just, I think that there are way better uses of, you know, yours and my lens and talents and perspective than just saying, you know, song good. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, song good, but... (laughs) (laughs) Song bad. Mm, Disagree. (laughs) I don't know. It's one of those things where, like, I don't want to tell people how to think. A lot of people will come into my work already having decided what they think, and then will use what I do as a way of either coming to either reinforcing their belief by agreeing with me or reinforcing their belief by disagreeing with me. That's fine. That like, yeah, as long as you're doing that, like openly and uh, self-aware about it, that's fine. That's I, that's what I'd like you to do is to examine your preconceptions with the lens of my analysis and see where they fit and think about why they do or don't. But I think that like, it becomes hard to, like, I, th- I think a lot of people overestimate the extent to which people like you and I can play tastemaker. Yeah. You know, like the extent to which I can put out a video about a song no one's heard of and get people interested in that song. Like, yeah. There are ways to do it. One of the things that I kind of try to find now is almost ways to backdoor people into the kind of analysis I want to do. I think the ultimate example of this recently for me is my House of the Rising Sun video. Everyone knows the song about the animals. I wanted to do a video about, you know, American folk music, which it might be my favorite topic in music. I I had not picked up on that. This is shocking news to me, Noah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's a perfect marriage of balance where you can do both of them. And, you know, I'm always a big fan of, I've said it here already, but like I like a lot of the stuff that Vox does, especially Earworm. One of my favorite videos that Estelle at Earworm did was her video on King Tubby as framed through the breakdown of Sicko Mode. And I think that's a really interesting way of essentially like, you know, nobody, well, not nobody, but not nearly as many people are going to go watch a video about dub, but sicko mode at the time was huge. So you go into sicko mode and you say it's a video about sicko mode and actually surprise, it's a video about dub. Like I'm, I'm working on a video right now about the Alabama song by the doors, which is not actually a video about the Alabama song by the doors. It's a video about Berthold Brecht and Kurt Vile, who are deeply, deeply fascinating figures. But if I say, Hey, let's talk about Berthold Brecht. No one's going to watch that. If I say, Hey, let's talk about the doors. That's a, that's a video. 
Yeah, that's the thing. I think we're, this is maybe a little bit off topic, but whatever, it's Ghost yeah. Notes. But that, I think, is the thing is you always need a hook to sort yeah. of get to sneak the thing in. And recently did a video called How Sheet Music Lies to You. And that, you know, you, you look at that and it, it winds up being this whole like discussion of like cultural notation practices. And, Ooh. but it, it sort of, leads you in with like, oh, there's not necessarily like a completely different topic, but like frames it as a story and as a deception yeah. and something that you can, and there's there's ways to do that, but like, especially for the sort of analysis that I do, which is a close reading of an individual work, like it becomes difficult to sort of do a song that people haven't heard of without using your hook to exoticize it. You know, because I can yeah. be like, oh, the coolest sound you've never heard of or whatever. But like, like I, I want to engage with works on their own merits. And this is the thing, even outside of like analysis, like there's a lot of things I would love to talk about that I don't for one, like various reasons. Like, for instance, the example I always use is gamelan tuning. Gamelan tuning is fascinating. It's such a cool topic. There's so much interesting stuff going on in the way that gamelan tuning works. And... And how they how they tune their instruments against each other and everything. It's so cool. But no one's going to click on that video. And the only way that I can get people to click on that video is, again, to exoticize the crap out of it. And yeah. that, again, coming back to the, the potential to do harm by doing a bad analysis, presenting this as some weird foreign alien concept that all the weird people do over in Indonesia is a really damaging way to frame that. And it's a really like harmful and dangerous way to frame it. And like, I, I also, another reason that I don't want to do it, coming back to like the the question of should this be me, that's not my culture. I can yeah. read about that, but I think so like, I feel like a tourist when I start doing it. And like, I could do that by working with an actual expert. If I could talk to someone from Indonesia, from one of those cultures who like, where they play gamelan music and who knows this stuff much more deeply and personally than I do, I could construct a pretty viable script, I'm pretty sure. But I just don't know how I could sell that without being gross. Well, and that also gets to like like just the problems of the medium in which we work and the yeah. specifically the platform is also like, yeah, you could reach out and, you know, talk to someone from Indonesia. That takes so much time and yeah. so much effort and so much kind of like connecting the dots. It is it is shocking how difficult it is to collaborate on YouTube. Yeah. Like it is like even with other YouTubers, it's just, it takes so much extra time. You'd think it would be easy because YouTubers, you know, in theory all make our own schedules, but being a YouTuber, you don't have a lot of free time. You don't like I've got, I've had several collaborations die. I mean, for me, similar to your Gamelon tuning. I think my version of that is I desperately, desperately want to talk about Afrobeat, but yeah. I know that I'm, Desperately, I know I'm not the person. Yeah, Soundfield has a great one uh, where they talk to, uh, like, Fela Kuti's son. Yeah, yeah, Femi Kuti. Yeah, that's, yeah, and that's great. Highly recommend that video as well. I highly recommend Soundfield. If you're not watching Soundfield, go watch Soundfield. It's so good. Yeah, I agree. And they, like, because they have PBS's resources, yeah. they can do a lot more of those collaborations. And they can sort of, they, they have producers, they have... But like I'm my own producer, and like this is this is so far yeah. off of the initial question that like maybe we should circle to somewhere else. I was gonna say like on this, this is kind of circling back. Is just like I think yeah. our philosophy of approaching music 
I think when we talk about these things, it's good to keep in mind that both Corey's and my philosophy are kind of warped and kind of specific to the platform that we exist on. But yeah. I, I mean, that's true of any form of art. Like, you know, yeah. music, music is defined by, you know, radio or now streaming or even vinyl records or stuff like that. Like, like, you know, yeah. McLuhan, you know, the medium is the message and so on. But that yeah, is yeah. something to keep in mind as we talk about this, because if I had, you know, carte blanche to do videos, however I wanted, take however long I wanted, do whatever I wanted, my approach to analysis would be very different. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that it's important to remember that, like, we're not music analysts, we're music analysts on YouTube. Yes. And that comes with all sorts of extra baggage. Exactly. Which, you know, again, like, music analysts in academia also comes with a lot of extra baggage. Yeah, yeah. Like, music analyst in any particular position comes with ba- their Just baggage comes with contexts. Contexts are contextual. Yeah. It's definitely a situation where a lot of my opinions, and this doesn't mean they're wrong, it just means they're not holistic. You know, a lot of my opinions, a lot of my perspectives on this stuff come from the realm of doing this on YouTube for, you know, the degrees of freedom that that buys and the degrees of freedom that that lacks. Yeah, no, your perspective is a perspective. And yeah, that's always important to be clear about, both with your audience, but especially with yourself. Yes. Again, this sort of comes back to a lot of, when I was talking about like the journaling exercise thing, a lot of this is comes with understanding deeply what the framework in which you are analyzing under does to your analysis and being explicit about that, at least in, in constructing that analysis. I think that's something that, again, changed for me over time because, again, my with my background being journalism, I never really believed in objectivity in journalism like some people do. Yeah. But that was still kind of, you know, driven into me. And I, from the beginning, had this idea, and it's still very much in the core of Polyphonic's voice, is that I am my voice appears as some sort of authority. As I've grown, I've tried to make it more and more clear that this is me talking. And I've been opened myself more up to, I still don't do it a ton just because I don't really like people knowing stuff about me. (laughs) But I've opened myself up a lot more to talking personally about my relationship yeah. with music and my own life and me as a figure. For the first couple of years in Polyphonic, I didn't want there to be, like, like I didn't want there to be any sign of yeah. Noah. I wanted Polyphonic to be, you know, Polyphonic. Yeah. But in recent years, I've grown a lot more open and I've realized, no, like there's there's value to cre- be yeah. created by opening up and being myself. Yeah, no, I mean, there is no view from nowhere, so trying to yeah. create that is just wasting time and misrepresenting your perspective. But no, I, I think that there's exactly. a lot of that, again, echoes throughout music theory history, where, yeah. you know, going back, again, to the mid-20th century, but again, going back earlier as well, there's sort of these ideas of, like, these are how music works, and trying to sort of be a bit more explicit about like, this is how I experience the music that I know and love. And like put putting yourself front and center in 
your own analysis because you are like at the end of the day, you are no matter what you do. So you might as well own that. Yeah. I think that's probably as good a place as any to start to bring this home. Yeah. Was there anything else that you wanted to get in there? Not super. I think the only thing that I mentioned is that like my perspective on music did fundamentally change when I heard Limp Bizkit's cover of Behind Blue Eyes. But Oh, well, naturally, <laughs> naturally. I mean, whose didn't? <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> only for better. How dare you? Yeah. Did you want to say anything about Jackson Brown? You haven't, haven't oh, mentioned I haven't, him yet. This yeah, podcast. no, uh, yeah, uh, I guess going back to the music that I got from my dad, that included Jackson Brown. <laughs> yeah. So there, there's my Jackson Brown there we thought go. for the episode. Okay. And you, you already you mentioned Bob Dylan, right? I mentioned yeah. Bob Dylan. He makes Let me go Christmas the songs. Yeah, yeah. We got we got really esoteric about definitions. Have we done that yet? This I episode? Think so. Did we? We 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 got we got into like the definition of analysis. The sculpting, I think the the whole sculpting metaphor, I think that checks that. I think box. so. And I said the word enculturation. I'm pretty sure. Yep. Okay. Yep. And and we mentioned that all music is subjective. Yep. All music is bad. Yeah. All right. All right. I think that's been an episode. Then. Congratulations. We did a ghost notes. You made it to the end. I'm so sorry. Look, you know where to find us. <laughs> Avoid those places. They're not good. These are not places of honor. This was a lot of fun. Hopefully, you guys all know a little more about us now and you know hopefully this helps you with your own personal music analysis which also yeah like do your own personal music analysis you don't need to you don't need to post it publicly you don't need to do any of this literally just sitting listening to a song and thinking about why you like that song that's musical analysis and it's rad and everyone should do it yeah and also posting it publicly is rad and everyone should do it you don't have to that too but it is rad so, yes. you know, keep that in mind. In our unbiased opinion. Yeah, no. Objectively speaking, <laughs> uh, on the rad scale, which is a real thing, I think, and for radioactivity, so don't... <laughs> I should stop talking. We've strung out the exit too long, so we're really into ghost notes now. Checked it all off. Yeah. Bye, everyone. <laughs>